0: Welcome back to Buried Motives.
1: We're so glad you're joining us today. Christy's got an awesome case. I do. Today
0: is listener request day. (laughs) We love those days. We really do. And we recently had a new listener message us with this case suggestion. As soon as I started researching this dirt bag, I knew I had to cover it. Right from the start, this case gave me chills.
1: Ooh, that says a lot because you don't freak out very easily. Usually I'm the one that freaks out.
0: (laughs) It's true. And it's not that I really like was freaking out, but it's just bothersome in the worst kind of way. Like creepy? Yeah. Ooh. Sadly, this case strikes close to home for our listener because her friend went missing around the same time as one of the victims in this case and was found in the river later that spring. Oh. Today's killer denied having anything to do with the death of our listener's friend. I'm not saying he did or didn't hurt more women than we know about, but it's important to remember that we're taking the word of a cold-blooded killer. Our new listener is Susan, and Susan, we are so sorry for the loss of your friend, and we hope we can do this case justice, and that you one day find out who was ultimately responsible for your friend's murder. Finding out that information can really help in the healing process. Absolutely, and that's our wish for you, and for all of those who loved her. Part of our objective in covering the cases we do is so the victims of these dirtbags are not forgotten. I recently saw a quote regarding murder victims. It said that they experience two deaths, the first when they take their last breath and the second when their name is said for the last time. We are here to say their names. That
1: is a really good quote.
0: Yeah, it really struck me when I read it. Today's murderer was a complete wolf in sheep's clothing He was trusted by Canada and had vowed to protect and defend our country. Instead, he terrorized many and took the life of at least two. In my opinion, if he hadn't been stopped when he was, I 100% believe he would have become a serial killer and taken as many lives as he could have. He followed a very clear pattern of escalation.
1: Oh, are we talking about a police officer or a border patrol?
0: We're going to be talking about a colonel. What? Mm Mm-hmm. Our dirtbag was a colonel in the Canadian Armed Forces and had successfully pulled the wool over our nation's eyes, including his own wife's. I think this is partly why I find this case so bothersome. He was totally living a double life and had this safe, protector image on the outside. I am sure I would have been bamboozled by him along with everyone else at the time.
1: There's just that unspoken level of trust. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And P.S. Who decided on the spelling of (laughs) Colonel? Why is there no R in the spelling? Every time I was writing it, I'm like, this is not how it should be spelled. I just don't understand.
1: (laughs) English is hard. It
0: really is. (laughs) David Russell Williams was born on March 7th, 1963, in Bromsgrove, Worcestershire, England. His mother was Christine Noni Williams, and his father was Cedric David Williams, but went by his middle name, David or Dave. David Russell Williams was named after his father's middle name, but was called Russell or Russ for short. I will refer to him by Russell as Russ feels too informal for this man. If that was confusing how he explained it, basically both Russell and his dad went by their given middle names.
1: Okay. All I need to know is Russell. Russell. Okay.
0: (laughs) So he went by his middle name. And middle names is going to be a theme throughout this, actually. When Russell was two years old, his baby brother Harvey was born. When Russell was almost five years old, his family immigrated to Canada. They moved to Deep River, Ontario for his father's employment. Cedric, or Dave, was a metallurgist at a nuclear research laboratory called Chalk River Laboratories. If you don't know what a metallurgist is, it's a mineral expert who specializes in the extraction of metals from their ores. I'm sure it's so much more than that, but that is just a base definition. In Canada, metallurgists make a very decent wage. This meant that the Williams family lived comfortably as upper middle class. So it was a good move for their family. Mm -hmm. Although Dave had a good job, he and his wife were maybe not as satisfied as they could be. And so they began swinging. Yes, they began swinging. And I don't mean the type of swinging that you do on playgrounds. No, the kind where
1: your garage door is halfway up.
0: And there's an upside down pineapple on your front step.
1: Or you do key parties. <laughs> yep. Put them in the bowl. Wait, maybe we know too much about this. We are not swingers.
0: <laughs> We're just really well informed.
1: <laughs> that's right. We do our research.
0: <laughs> but if that's your lifestyle and you're not hurting anyone, you do you.
1: I batter. <laughs> yeah. Or him. Or both.
0: It's always (laughs) always both. (laughs) But apparently, this was quite a common practice at the time for the area that they lived in. Many couples were participating in this type of activity. Russell's parents would often partner swap with the same couple, Jerry and Marilyn Sovka. As I can imagine it would be, this was a practice with a slippery slope for Dave and Christine.
1: Yeah, I don't know how you would be able to do that. How jealousies wouldn't flare. Especially if you're swapping with the same couples all the time.
0: Yeah, they had kind of found this couple that both of them, well, that all four of them enjoyed wife swapping with. Hmm. Their relationships with the other couple grew to the point of both couples deciding to end their marriages with their current spouses and then marry the opposite couple. That happens. It does. This means that Dave married Marilyn and Christine married Marilyn's ex-husband, Jerry. This partner swapping became permanent. I read that Christine's new relationship lasted, but Dave's did not. After the divorces, Russell and his brother Harvey lived with their mother and her new husband in Scarborough, which is just outside of Toronto. The boys kept a good relationship with their dad, despite not living with him anymore. And I think he and his new wife also moved to Scarborough, but don't quote me on that. Needless to say, Russell's childhood was definitely unique, but it was described as a happy one. Russell and his brother were given everything they needed and every opportunity growing up, including attending the most prestigious schools. However, it would turn out that Russell had a more difficult time with what had happened to his family than others originally thought.
1: That would be really hard to understand as a child.
0: It would. Even as an adult, it would be (laughs) hard to walk through those waters, I think. I read in one account that Russell used Jerry's last name, Sovka, for a time while growing up but then started going by Williams again while in university. So maybe some confusion going on there for him during his younger years. And another fun fact, when his mother Christine married Jerry, she started using her middle name as her first. Instead of Christine, she now went by Noni Tsovka.
1: There's a whole lot of identity stuff going on here. Yeah,
0: everyone's middle name. And I think it was just so that as I was doing my research, I could be like, wait, Christine is Noni, Cedric is Dave, (laughs) David is Russell. (laughs) It was keeping me on my toes. When Russell was 15, he developed a love for jazz music and started to play the trumpet, a practice that only lasted during his teenage years. However, he was super talented at it and even competed and won in competitions in New York and Germany with his school band. Oh, wow. In 1979, Russell moved to South Korea for a year with his family for Jerry's work. His stepdad oversaw the construction of a nuclear power plant there. Russell apparently did not enjoy his time in South Korea. He was not accepted by the other kids his age there. That being said, it was reported that Russell in general didn't have a lot of friends or people he was close to. He was generally more interested in order and doing things the right way than he was concerned about having fun.
1: Oh, and that typically does not go over well with young children. (laughs) Mm Mm-mm.
0: Russell and his brother both attended the Upper Canada College in Ontario at the University of Toronto Scarborough campus. Russell graduated in 1986 with honors with a degree of bachelor's in arts in political science and economics. During university, Russell was described as an introvert, even though he was a super good prankster. One prank that he often enjoyed was to pick the lock of one of his roommate's room's doors, and then wait for long periods of time inside their rooms to be able to jump out and scare them.
1: So I don't know what he's going on to do next, but we know he's a murderer. These are all huge warning signs, isn't it? He just took a career in how to communicate and manipulate people. Mm-hmm. And now he likes to lockpick and hide in people's rooms?
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> this becomes a disturbing fact to me when we learn what he eventually does do. He obviously got a thrill by invading someone else's privacy. And the things that he was learning definitely play into effect later on. That's wild. Mm -hmm. It made him a good colonel, but it also made him have skills to do the sickening things that he does. Ooh, Yeah, like I said, I don't know. This one just gave me the chills. And those qualities are all things
1: that you would think would be like they're funny. Oh, yeah. They're entertaining.
0: Oh, I scare my kids all the time. It's fun to, like, scare somebody like that to jump out, but I don't hide in their room for half an hour waiting for them. (laughs) One of his roommates said about him hiding to scare them, quote, he'd go into my room, stand in the closet, and later I'd come in and start studying at my desk. And he could be there for maybe half an hour and then push open the closet door and scare the heck out of me. I'd be on the ceiling and he'd be laughing his head off. Despite this, Russell was said to have a loneliness about him and didn't talk about his family or past. People could tell that it was painful for him to talk about it. He also rarely went home to visit his family for the holidays. But there
1: is no signs of abuse or anything like that. Was he just embarrassed by his family
0: dynamics? Maybe. I think it just really traumatized him as a kid, his family breaking up. And he probably knew the Savka as just their family friends. Mm -hmm. And then his whole world was kind of turned upside down when that happened. Although he doesn't talk about it.
1: He doesn't seem to have a lot of social skills in the first place, though. No. So probably less emotional intelligence to actually work through all of those complicated scenarios. I think so. Just because you're intellectually advanced doesn't mean you're emotionally advanced.
0: Say that again for the people in the back. (laughs) (laughs) Did I mumble it? (laughs) No, I mean, it's true. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so funny one of his roommates later said that when they were all first assigned to be roommates russell came up with a schedule for cooking and household chores to rotate between them they thought he came across as bossy he kept his room and clothing immaculate and earned the nicknames drill sergeant sergeant major and mother goose
1: is this why he goes into the army
0: i will tell you why in a second eventually he was able to lighten up a tiny bit and became more likable. He was said to have a super memorable laugh. It was high-pitched and was a mix of a gasp and then an eruption. And this was around the time that he had switched his name back to Williams. Hmm. It sounds like he's got real identity issues going on. I think so. Which speaks to how confused he was when his family dynamic was changed so drastically. Mm -hmm. But you change your name
1: and now he's got a different personality. Kind of too, right?
0: Yeah. Or maybe he's feeling like I'm going back to my original me. Mm. Because the thing with how it happened with his family too, it's not just that his parents broke up and then eventually started dating other people and got married. They broke up and immediately got together with their swinging partners. Mm. There was no time in between to get used to the idea.
1: And the kids probably didn't have a full awareness of what the parents were doing. It wasn't like they were prepped to understand that switch right away it would have come as a huge shock
0: yeah I think so on May 16th 1986 a movie came out that would change the course of Russell's life any guesses which one Top Gun yes (laughs) it was Top Gun and I thought what young guy in his early 20s didn't want to be Tom Cruise at that time Russell was 23 when the movie came out and he decided he wanted to become a pilot Such a cool movie. It really is. And the second one was done really well. Yeah, it's a good one too. He filled out applications for both the RCMP and the Canadian Forces. He was accepted by both and chose the Armed Forces.
1: Which says a lot about his academics.
0: It really does. In 1987, Russell was living his dream when he was selected to the Military Pilots Program. An honor that only 1% of applicants get... And he eventually became good enough to be a flight instructor for two years at the CFB Portage-la-Prairie Manitoba base.
1: Wow. So he's got some major skills then. hmm Or some colonel skills.
0: He does. <laughs> and he has some less desirable skills as well. Oh, no. Still in his 20s, Russell met and married a woman named Mary Elizabeth Harriman. I found one report that refers to her as Elizabeth, which is her middle name. <laughs> I'm not sure if she actually went by her middle name or not, so I will call her Mary. But I was just feeling like there's so many middle names. Mary was the associate director of Canada's Heart and Stroke Foundation, so also very successful. Russell only had one other serious girlfriend prior to meeting Mary. The pair were married on June 1st, 1991, when Russell was 28 years old. Mary was just a few years older than Russell. During this time, according to his glowing write-up of all his accomplishments on the Department of National Defense website... It's not still there, is it? It's not. Okay, good. But on it, he was said to enjoy photography, which will make you sick later, fishing, and running. Russell and his wife Mary also love to golf together. In 2006, they moved to a street called Wilkie Drive in a suburb of Ottawa called Orleans. The couple lived happily in their home for over a decade until they were able to move into their dream home in the neighborhood of Westboro, Ottawa. They also owned a cottage on Cozy Cove Lane in the village of Tweed, Ontario, which is about 53 kilometers or 33 miles from Trenton.
1: Super cute area.
0: Oh, you know the area? Yeah. <laughs> oh, and even the name Cozy Cove Lane. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't such a bad case, I would be obsessed with that address. Russell would often use this cottage as a place to stay closer to work before returning home to his wife. His wife lived in Ottawa full-time, and Russell lived half-time in both Ottawa and Tweed. The pair never had children and seemed to happily focus on their careers and one another. From the very beginning, Russell's career only continued to skyrocket, earning him many titles and responsibilities. I could list them all, but most of us wouldn't even understand what they mean. For example, one of the things was that he served as the project director for the Airlift Capability Project Strategic CC-177 Globemaster III and Tactical CC-130J Hercules J and Fixed Wing Search and Rescue. Did you catch any of that? Because I sure didn't.
1: That's quite the title.
0: It is. That is a mouthful. However, I will note a few other things quickly, but no, it is not nearly all the things. It was overwhelming for me to choose what to include. I think this is the first time I've ever covered a dirtbag with so many accomplishments. He became a captain on January 1st, 1991. He was promoted to major in November of 1999. He was the multi-engine pilot career manager. He earned his Master of Defense Studies in 2004 and was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel that same year and was appointed Commanding Officer at CFB, which is Canadian Forces Base in Trenton, Ontario. In 2009, Russell became the high rank of colonel and was the commanding officer of 8-wing CFB Trenton. He was sworn in as the wing commander and became a VIP transport pilot, meaning he was entrusted with flying passengers needing the utmost protection. He flew passengers such as Canadian Prime Minister Jean Chrétien, Queen Elizabeth II, and Prince Philip. There are actually photos of him standing in his full military pilot uniform right next to the queen who was wearing a lime green dress and hat. She had no idea who she was entrusting her life to.
1: And this was all at the time when he was
0: murdering or before? Yeah, it's all happening at this point because he starts in 2009. But his earlier crimes start years prior.
1: That's crazy. Mm hmm. So is he just really good at living two separate lives, or does he have two distinct personalities?
0: I think he's just really good at living two separate lives. He's this decorated colonel on one hand, and then he is a sadistic dirtbag on the other. And nobody is the wiser. Hmm. He also served a tour of duty in the Middle East. I could go on, but I think you get the picture. He's a decorated pilot. Yes. Colonel Russell Williams was well-liked highly respected, and a very important part of the military program in Canada. He was the guy that others looked up to and wanted to be like. He was considered the, quote, shining bright star of the military. He had more than exceeded his Top Gun fantasy.
1: So where does it all go wrong then? It sounds like he's living the dream.
0: I know. And why can't that just be good enough? Why do you have to be such a dirtbag and such a waste? Like, he's so talented. What we're going to cover next is far from a fantasy that anyone would hope for. It was instead a disturbing nightmare. I mentioned earlier that Russell often stayed at their cozy Cove Lane cottage when he was performing his colonel duties at the Trenton Canadian Forces Base. If I looked it up in maps correctly, it was about a 42-minute drive. Their new home in Westboro, Ottawa, was a two-hour and 44-minute drive from the base, and their first house in Orleans was even farther away at three hours away from the base. This decision for Russell to often stay in Tweed appeared to be a practical one. No one would ever suspect what was about to happen while Russell was left to his own accord.
1: Sounds like he had a plausible excuse why to stay at the cabin while he was at work.
0: It's hard to say for sure when Russell's criminal behavior began, but we do know that on September 8th in 2007, 44-year-old Russell broke into a neighbor's cottage while they were away. And I'm just going to warn you that it's going to be bad from now until pretty much the end. He went into the 12-year-old daughter's room and took some of her underwear out of her drawer. And do you remember that he had developed a love and talent for photography?
1: Did he put it on?
0: He does. Russell decided to take pictures of the underwear spread over the girl's bed, along with provocative photographs of himself wearing the girl's undergarments. Throughout this case, when I say underwear, it may also include items like bras and lingerie. Was this something that
1: he did at home too? Like, was his wife aware of this fetish that he had?
0: I don't think he ever did it at home where he lived with his wife, but he would at home, maybe at the Tweed Cottage, he would continue to put on underwear that he steals and take more photos.
1: Oh, but his wife wasn't aware of this.
0: Not at all. He spent nearly three hours in the neighbor's home. And before he left, he masturbated into the underwear while lying on the young girl's bed. No! When he left, he took some of the said underwear with him to keep. Russell knew the young girl from family friend gatherings. They would have dinners together. And he just left that there on her bed. I think he had done it into the underwear and took that with him, but he does leave signs of masturbation in other people's bedrooms, young girls' bedrooms. Oh, it was found on one girl's dresser and different areas. That is disgusting. Mm-hmm. Beyond. Three weeks later, he went back into the same home three different times over the span of 24 hours and continued to take photos, masturbate, and steal her underwear.
1: Because the family's away on vacation. hmm So he has free access to this home.
0: Yep. Over the next few months, Russell continued to break into homes in the Tweed as well as the Belleville area. And eventually, even closer to his main residence with his wife. And that tells me that it wasn't good enough to only be doing it when he was at Tweed. He was getting those urges that overtook him, even while he was staying with his wife.
1: Well, he was having less and less control.
0: Yeah, exactly. He would choose homes that had girls or young women living there. He would often enter the homes at night when no one was home. This gave him the freedom to steal underwear and take photos. When he could, he walked to the homes. For some of the houses, once was not enough, and Russell would return to continue his violating thefts. If he couldn't return to the house, like I said, he would pleasure himself with the underwear he took from the house to be able to relive the experience. Oh, man. That is creepy. It really is. And I don't know if it was because he targeted nice neighborhoods, but often Russell entered through unlocked doors and windows. If he had to, he would cut a screen to force a window open, or he would pick a lock, a skill he had gotten good at during university when he would prank his roommates. Some of his break-and-enter victims didn't even know he had been there.
1: Their underwear was just missing,
0: and they were like, they didn't know where their underwear was? No, sometimes he would only take one or two. Sometimes he would take a bunch, but they might think, oh, where did that underwear go? Is it in the dryer? Who keeps track of every piece of underwear?
1: Yeah, I guess. I guess I envisioned him taking like, Fancy underwear. And so you recognize when your fancy underwear is gone.
0: (laughs) Depends how often you wear said (laughs) fancy underwear. (laughs) This is so eerie to me, though, to think that someone had been in your home violating your personal intimate items and you had no idea.
1: Or that you're crawling into bed that has... what's the nice word to
0: say? (laughs) Where a man had pleasured himself without you knowing. In your bed. That's gross. It really is. Altogether... There were 82 documented burglaries. During these break-ins, Russell collected around 1,400 items of intimate apparel. Bras, underwear, bathing suits, and lingerie. 1,400? Yes, 1,400. That is a lot of underwear. Yeah, well, he broke in 82 times that we know of. You would notice they were missing. Oh, some of them do notice. Oh, okay. I'm just I saying thinking. he's able to take all these items and nobody notices. A lot of them do notice, but not many are actually reported. Okay. Yeah.
1: And he's taking them like a couple at a time and then coming back, taking a couple more. Because mm-hmm. 82 break-ins, some of those were repeat houses, right? Yes. Okay. That's still a lot of intimates.
0: It really is. And even just storing that many, like he had boxes in his garage where he had the stuff stored.
1: Oh, man. What did he have labeled on the boxes?
0: I'm not sure. In his confession, he tells the officer that if you go in my garage and look for a printer box, like the printer scanner from my office inside that box, you'll find stuff. Oh, And then he goodness. said there's a bunch of boxes right around that area. I'm assuming so that his wife wasn't curious, he probably wrote work stuff on it. I could not find photos of the boxes and evidence. But
1: it. he likes organization, so I'm sure he had it all
0: categorized. Oh, he would have had to have it labeled to make sure that his wife wouldn't go in there. It's just mind-blowing. It really is. In addition to the clothing, he even went as far to steal sex toys. No. He did.
1: Oh, that's so gross. <laughs> he did. He's reusing other people's sex toys.
0: Well, he's taking them with him, so I'm assuming he is using them. I'm going to be way too curious on this case, Christine. <laughs>
1: what sex toys was he stealing
0: oh we're gonna talk about it
1: okay he wore the underwear how was he not using the sex toys
0: yeah that's where
1: my my thought process is going
0: oh i would 100 percent believe that he did oh there's just no documentation about him actually using them
1: so gross this Mm -hmm. guy
0: is a sicko he really is a sicko i am just jaw open oh gross Right. And now you can see why as soon as I started looking into this case, it just gave me chills and it was so bothersome to me. And I was actually like looking into it. I was sitting at my desk and I kept kind of like going like, oh, no, what? <laughs> and my husband was like, what are you doing? And I'm like, someone requested a case and I'm totally doing this case because I was so shocked and disturbed by it. Ugh. It's so icky.
1: Yeah. Icky is a good word for it. Yeah.
0: Sorry, guys. This one's an icky one. A large majority of the break-ins were not even reported, like I said, but it was clear that he was starting to personalize his victims when he began stealing non-sexual items, such as photographs that were displayed in the house and personal documents like passports.
1: So he could masturbate to their photos while wearing their underwear.
0: Likely. And it wasn't then just about the underwear, it was now about the woman that the underwear belonged to.
1: So you can see this escalating, because next he's going to have to have the woman.
0: Yeah. It's a super dangerous progression. For one young girl, he wrote the word merci on her computer. No, he didn't. Merci is French for thank you. What a sick son of a gun.
1: Oh, and how young were these girls?
0: I saw one report that said nine, but most reports said from ages 12 into like womanhood. That's
1: young. Mm-hmm.
0: So I'm going to say 12 because only one report did I see nine. Okay. But still, any age is too young. Thankfully, his physical attacks wasn't on children.
1: Not that we would want attacks on women, but it just is so much more horrific when it's on a child. Exactly. That's my
0: thought. Russell also became more brazen and one day walked into a home while a woman was showering. He stripped down naked and was going to enter the bathroom to steal her underwear that she had just been wearing from the floor. But he left, worried that he would be caught.
1: Why did he strip down naked? Because he's a pervert. Maybe that was just his regular routine when he went into a house. Like, did he know that she was there?
0: Yeah. He wanted her fresh used underwear off the floor while she was showering.
1: So he knew she was there and he still stripped down naked.
0: Yep. Couldn't help himself. Wow. Uh huh.
1: That speaks a lot to his control or lack of control.
0: Exactly. And his confidence. Another time after invading a 14 year old's bedroom, he waited in her backyard for her to come home. He masturbated looking into her window. He had even moved her guitar inside her room slightly so he could see through the window better. Thankfully, the girl's father came home with her and he didn't get the chance to watch the girl undress like he had hoped.
1: So he did masturbate or he didn't masturbate? He
0: did in the yard looking okay. into her room.
1: While he was waiting for her to show up. Yep. Yep. Even just that excited him enough.
0: Just the thought of it, he had to relieve himself. And then he waited. The father came home with her. He did see her, but only for a couple of minutes. Okay. He was hoping he was going to get to watch her get changed, undress, get ready for bed, that kind of thing. She's 14. I know. And he was just kind of like, well, I'll try again later, kind of a thing. There's no reports that he actually did, but that was his attitude. Hmm. Although these break ins were happening all around his residences, Russell was never suspected of being the perverted creep that he was. In fact, it is reported that when an officer was going door to door to question neighbors about if they had seen anything suspicious, he rang Russell's door, but he wasn't home. The officer then asked a different neighbor if he knew who lived at the house. When the neighbor said it was a colonel who lived there, the officer alluded to the fact that he didn't really need to question him then.
1: Because he's so trustworthy.
0: Yeah, he's a colonel in the Canadian Armed Forces. He should be trustworthy. You would think. And that's why this just feels like such a...
1: Violation?
0: Yeah, it really does. Detective Sergeant Jim Van Ellen was a criminal profiler with the OPP, which is the Ontario Provincial Police. He stated that the unknown intruder was becoming more aggressive and was becoming an increasing danger for a hands-on sexual assault. Unfortunately, this is exactly what would eventually happen.
1: The escalation is so clear, it's hard not to guess that it's going in that direction.
0: Mm-hmm. Things became physical for Russell in September of 2009. He attacked two separate women during that month. On the 17th, he attacked a woman referred to as Jane Doe. Her name has been protected by a publication ban. At 1 o'clock a.m., he cut the screen on a window on the side of her home and entered without her knowing. The woman was sleeping when he first attacked her by pressing her face into her pillow. I thought, how terrifying to be awoken that way. He bound her hands and spent the next two hours taking pictures and sexually assaulting her. All the while, the woman's eight-week-old baby laid sleeping in the next room. No way. Yes. She had just given birth only two months prior. Oh. To try and calm Jane Doe, Russell told her that he wasn't going to kill her or her baby. When he left, he took underwear along with any items that he thought might have his DNA on it. Police later found DNA anyways, but did not have Russell's DNA on file to match it to. Russell returned to the home a few more times to steal more underwear. Once he saw that her husband was back home, he entered one last time and took a photograph of the woman's driver's license. So I'm not sure if her husband worked away you know how Mm -hmm. sometimes with your job you have to work away and you're gone for periods of time so he thought she lived alone but then discovered oh no she actually has a husband and so he just went in that one last time and then left it alone and moved on to the next
1: where is he storing all these photos
0: I believe it's just all on memory cards so probably looking at them on his computer okay less than two weeks later he attacked a 46 year old woman named Lori Massacott he admitted that he chose her because she lived alone And I think perhaps he had gotten spooked when Jane Doe's husband returned. Russell again entered Lori's home twice when she wasn't home prior to the physical attack. Maybe to familiarize himself with her floor plan, but definitely to steal her underwear.
1: Or do you think he was trying to subdue himself with just stealing the underwear, but just couldn't stop at that stage and it gradually built?
0: Yeah, that's hard to say. I'm not sure. He could have been in there and then just became so enthralled that he knew he wanted her.
1: Yeah, and then kept going back.
0: Yeah. And then finally, on September 30th, he actually broke into her home while she was sleeping. He struck her on the head with a large flashlight. He then placed his arm around her neck until she urinated. She was likely beyond scared. He bound her hands behind her back and spent almost three hours assaulting her and taking photographs. This time, however, Russell told her that he was there with other people who were robbing her and that he was sent into the room to keep her under control. At one point, Lori asked for an aspirin and Russell went and got it for her. He also apologized for hitting her and told her she had a nice house and assured her that he wasn't going to kill her. It
1: just seems so bizarre.
0: Mm-hmm. And maybe that's where his professional side and his dirtbag side are kind of being meshed together. By this time, Russell had earned himself the name of the Tweed Creeper by the media. Russell was later found with photographs of the newspaper that reported about his crimes. He also had photos of that same newspaper on fire inside his fireplace.
1: Oh, well, He was very artistic about it then. Mm-hmm.
0: So rather than keeping a bunch of those things, he would just take a photo of it and then destroy it. He probably thought he was being so smart to do that, a way to keep the memento. Yeah. But he's probably like, I don't want to be one of those weird guys when you, in the movies, you walk in and they have all the news articles and everything all posted on their wall.
1: Instead, I'll just keep it on a memory card.
0: Yeah, Uh, it's not better, Russell. It's not. Unfortunately, despite assuring Jane Doe and Lori that he would not end their lives, only two months later, Russell would escalate to murder. And I do want to point out as well that during these first two attacks, the sexual assaults did not include penetration. But that would change with the next victims as well. Mm. So he follows this clear pattern of escalation, just little by little. I think he just needed a bigger and bigger thrill. And that's why they're getting
1: closer and closer together too.
0: Yeah. While scoping out his first murder victim, Russell continued to engage in his fetish break-ins and robberies. He entered the home of a civilian employee at the Canadian Forces Base, CFB Trenton, at 5 in the morning. I assume this meant she did not hold any military position, but still worked for them. He said he picked the house because he noticed that a woman lived there. So I don't believe he knew her. Okay. The first time he entered this woman's home, he stole 44 items of lingerie, a pornographic movie, and some of her sex toys. When the woman returned home, she noticed the missing items because 44 is a lot. Uh Uh-huh. She was shocked and didn't know if it was a joke by someone she knew or not. She called a friend and they discussed if she should report it to the police. Russell broke back into the house later that same night and stole 116 additional intimate clothing items and sex toys. That's a lot. To make matters worse, before he left, in an attempt to intimidate his victim even more, he left her a threatening message on her computer screen. It read, quote, go ahead and call the police. I want to show the judge your really big dildos. Trying to
1: shame her into not calling the police? Yeah.
0: And I thought, did this mean that he was hiding in her house the entire time and overheard her conversation with her friend about if she should call the police or not? It makes me wonder if when he was
1: back in university, was this the switch for him?
0: Yeah, he was pulling those
1: pranks and he liked to scare people and get that reaction out of them. But him sitting in a closet for half an hour, I wonder if that's where his urges started to watch people.
0: Definitely could have. I think there has to be a correlation. Yeah. And honestly, we have said it in other cases before, but this guy is truly what nightmares and horror movies are made of. He's such a creep. He is. And he wanted her to be scared. Russell's first murder victim was someone that he did know from work. He targeted 37-year-old Corporal Marie-France Camot. She was under his charge at the base in Trenton, and because of this, he had access to her schedule. Marie France lived in Brighton, which was west of Trenton, so this time Russell had to drive to her house. He scoped her house out a couple of days prior to murdering her. He said he just wanted to see where she lived, and so he drove to her house. She had told him she lived alone, and he wanted to be sure. He looked through her personal things and took her underwear with him. On the night of the murder, November 23rd, 2009, he entered her house through a basement window on the side of her house. It was left slightly opened, so he removed the screen and crawled in. He brought with him a duffel bag filled with supplies that he would need. The time was around 11 o'clock p.m., and he could hear Marie France on the phone upstairs. He wouldn't leave the house until 4.30 a.m., hours later. Russell was wearing a black skull cap pulled down to his eyes and a blue winter headband over the bottom of his face pulled up to his eyes. The only thing anyone would be able to see was his eyes. He wore this during all the attacks. He said Marie France never realized it was him, so it worked. And during parts of it, like, he's totally naked and then has just this stuff over his face. Like, it would have been so scary. Russell decided to hide beside the furnace and wait until Marie France had fallen asleep. However, this plan would be disrupted by a cat, and he had waited for about an hour by her furnace while she was upstairs getting ready for bed and on the phone. But the cat was like, hey, there's a stranger. Yeah. While Russell was hiding beside the furnace, Marie France's cat sat staring at him. Marie France was trying to find her cat before she went to bed and decided to go look for her cat in the basement. She was naked and just had a shawl over her shoulders. Marie-France could see that her cat was fixated on something, and this is how she spotted Russell. Oh, could you imagine just those eyes peering out from the dark? Yeah, right by your furnace, you see this man, this figure. Like I said, it is like a horror movie to me. She began to scream, and so Russell leaped out from his hiding spot and hit her on the head with his large red flashlight, breaking her skin. He later said that she put up a fight, and he had to wrestle her to the ground. He was able to subdue her when she tripped and then he tied her up with green boat rope that he had brought with him. He tied her first to a pole in the basement and took his first few photos of her. He then left her in the house while he ran outside to replace the window screen that he had removed so that no one would see it and become suspicious. That's smart. Yeah, but he leaves her tied up to this pole, runs out, quickly does that and comes back.
1: Because he doesn't want to be interrupted because the last one he was with was like three hours. Mm -hmm. That's a long time.
0: Oh, yeah. Three minutes is too long to be with this guy. When he returned, they began to struggle again as he tried to move her upstairs. Marie France briefly passed out from the blows to her head on the stairs. And so Russell took that opportunity to take more photos of her. And then he carried her up to her bedroom. I can't imagine the poor police that had to go through Mm. these photos. He laid her on her bed and raped her multiple times over, a period lasting close to two hours. He admitted to not being able to ejaculate during her rapes. Russell at one point left the room to make sure no one was coming. I think he was really paranoid with this one. Marie France took this opportunity and tried to flee to the ensuite. Russell caught her and again hit her on her head. He then raped her again. Her hand stayed bound behind her back throughout the ordeal and was clearly causing her a lot of pain. In an attempt to end her life, Russell began strangling Marie France. He said he was surprised at how much she was fighting back and it was hard to control her. Uh, yeah, you fight for your life. Yeah, and she's military. As an alternative, he decided he needed to suffocate her instead. Russell had already placed duct tape over her mouth to stop her from screaming. He placed duct tape over her nose as well and held it there until she stopped breathing. Oh, there's always so much panic that goes with that. Oh, I cannot even imagine. That's not a quick death. No. Once she was dead, he took a few more photos, removed the duct tape from her face, and left her on the bed covered with a duvet. Russell put her sheets that he had raped her on in the washing machine with a bunch of bleach and then fled out the back patio door, leaving her body. He drove back to Ottawa with her undergarments in tow and then was at work shortly after for an early meeting. What? Yeah, because he had a meeting to get to. It was like check-in kind of meeting and he didn't want to not show up for work. Because that would erase suspicions. So he's just going to toe the line. Yeah. And act like nothing is different. Right. And from my understanding, it was he didn't have much time in between when he finished till when he had to get to work. So he probably hadn't even like showered or anything like that. Did he eventually ejaculate? Not there. Oh. I read one report that said that he did in the bathroom, like in the ensuite. Afterwards. In, into his hand. But, and maybe he did afterwards because during his confession, he said that he was not able to ejaculate during the rape. That's an interesting fact. Mm hmm. I thought so too. Russell said after her body was discovered 30 hours later, he quote-unquote, found out through a company email informing staff that she had passed. Being a colonel, Russell sent her grieving father a personal condolence. No way. Mm -hmm. And her father likely, initially, would have thought it thoughtful of him, having no idea that he was the dirtbag who snuffed out his dear daughter's life.
1: That just always irks me when they send these kind of secret remorse letters.
0: Yeah. But for him, it was a work thing, right? Mm -hmm. I was her colonel. It was probably a standard thing that he would send a letter of condolence. And I just wanted to note that a lot of this information we get from Russell's later confession, but along with taking photographs, Russell also video recorded a lot of his crimes, including his physical assaults and murders. So a lot of this is caught on videotape.
1: That is so disturbing. Mm -hmm. Those poor police officers that would have had to view all of that.
0: I can't imagine he had hundreds and hundreds of photos and hours and hours of video. Yeah. Sadly, Russell would escalate his violence with his next and final murder. This time on January 28, 2010, Russell decided to target 27-year-old Jessica Lloyd. Jessica lived near Belleville, Ontario. He had first spotted her through her window while she was working out on her treadmill. He again entered her home a few days prior to steal underwear and make sure that she lived alone. On the night of the murder, Russell found her asleep after breaking into her home. He stood beside her, and as he was about to hit her, she woke up to see him standing there. And I honestly cannot imagine what his victims went through.
1: It would have been awful.
0: He bound her hands with rope and covered her eyes with duct tape. Russell cut off her shirt and pulled off her pants. Jessica tried to be compliant despite being terrified and in obvious pain from the hand restraints. Being the disgusting slime on society, Russell assaulted Jessica for three hours. He raped her in multiple ways and took photos with the lingerie. He would dress his victims up in the different undergarments for some of the photos. He also took some extremely explicit photos of her. This time, Russell didn't want his time with Jessica to end so soon, so he called in to work sick and took Jessica to his cozy Cove Lane cottage. The escalation of this guy is just... So incredible. It is. It's so quick. Mm -hmm. Just even from one crime to the next, he's continuously escalating. And that's why I just cannot even imagine if he wasn't caught, what he would have turned into. I don't think there would be any boundaries that he wouldn't have crossed. Yeah, not with this
1: kind of escalation.
0: When they got there to the cottage, Russell washed Jessica in the shower. At one point, she complained that the water was too hot, and so he changed the water temperature for her. She was still bound, and so that's why he was washing her. And again, this shows him showing a little bit of compassion for her. A little
1: bit. (laughs) He's bound
0: her in the shower.
1: He's already raped her. He already knows he's going to kill her.
0: Yeah, but why make the adjustment then? You know, if you're going to change the water temperature, then you care if she feels too hot, if it's uncomfortable for her. Right. So it just blows my mind. Like, those two things should not be happening at the same time. No, it sounds so odd. It does. It does. It doesn't jive. It doesn't add up to me. Russell then laid her beside him on the bed so that they could take a nap. He had rope tied to her and then around his waist with very little wiggle room, so he would know the second she tried to escape. This nap was cut short when Jessica started to have a stress-induced seizure. What? hmm Video shows Russell caring for her through the ordeal. He offered his help and said things like, quote, don't bite your tongue, relax, Try to relax. Focus. Stay with me, Jessica. Hang in there, baby. What? Yeah, puke. You have literally done such horrific things to this woman that you've made her have a stress-induced seizure? And then you're going to try and help her through it and be kind?
1: Yeah, that's weird.
0: Come closer so I can punch you in the throat. (laughs) Throat punch. Honestly. After she recovered from the seizure, he untied her hands and allowed her to sleep for an hour, but still blindfolded. Did she have a seizure disorder previous to this? She had sometimes, yeah. Mm. When she woke up, Russell was raring to go. He said he wanted to have sex with her one more time, and then he would let her go. This is what he tells her. The truth was, he never had any intention of letting her or Marie France go. He said he knew they could be tied to him, so he couldn't let them live. Russell proceeded to dress Jessica in different sets of lingerie and raped her both orally, both ways as well as with intercourse, controlling her during it with a zip tie around her neck. Ugh, this guy is awful. But that's how he was able to make sure that she wasn't going to hurt him while she was doing that. Mm. I won't include all of the degrading details, but with Jessica, he was able to ejaculate. I think this speaks to his increased confidence and escalation. We can see him evolving with each victim. When he was done, he gave her some fruit to eat and allowed her to get dressed. She believed that he was going to release her. She still had the tape over her eyes. Russell rebound her hands and placed duct tape over her mouth. As they began to leave, they walked past the fireplace and Russell suddenly hit Jessica over the head with his red metal flashlight. He said he was surprised that her skull gave way underneath of it the way that it did. Her wound bled profusely.
1: Yeah, no kidding. All mm-hmm. head wounds do.
0: Yeah, but he had actually caved in her skull. Russell grabbed his rope and strangled Jessica to death. Next, he took more photos. They had been together for just a few hours short of an entire day. He placed her body inside his garage and cleaned up the blood. When he was done, he drove to the base. He had a flight early the next morning.
1: There's no way he would have gotten all that blood.
0: He does a pretty good job. To the naked eye.
1: Hmm. But they're going to find some evidence, right?
0: Oh, yeah. He cleans it up to the naked eye, but not to the forensic eye. Hmm. He didn't return to the cottage in Tweed until February 2nd, meaning her body had been left unattended for a few days. He had went back to his home in Ottawa to spend time with his wife after his flight. His poor wife
1: to Mm -hmm. find out all this afterwards. Yeah.
0: And even just thinking of him coming home, he's just, you know, he's been in Tweed working, does this flight, comes home. They get to spend these nice few days together. They go out for dinner. They're going on little dates, that kind of stuff. Probably being intimate, not knowing what he's just done. Yeah, that's disturbing. Yeah. When Russell did return to Tweed, he wrapped Jessica's body in towels and duct tape and drove her out to a wooded area. He discarded her body without a second thought. When police would later find his hundreds of photos, they found a photo of him with the news reports on his computer screen and one of the videos he took while torturing Jessica. Like this little selfie. Like, look, ha ha ha. He's so artistic. Yeah. Gross. And so did they ever find her body? He tells them where her body is eventually. Yeah. But doing this, I felt like it was like he was documenting his hunting trophy. He took over 300 photos of his assault on Jessica alone. He just truly sickens me. And I have to say, ladies, after researching this case, I plead with all of you, please don't tell people you live alone unless you know you can trust them. And please make sure your doors and windows are locked. Even for things like if you order food and it's being delivered... Holler out a man's name that the food is here as you go to open the door so that they will think someone is there with you. What Russell did was such an invasion of privacy. We should be safe inside our own homes and shouldn't have to always be protecting ourselves. But sadly, we do. And what I think really bothers me about his case is that he was someone you'd least expect to hurt or violate you. He was someone who we have been taught to look up to and entrust our safety with. He wore a military pilot's uniform and exuded that authoritative, safe feeling. Yeah, he was supposed to be the protector. Yeah.
1: Not the destroyer.
0: No. And I just added that in there because so many times he was able to just come in an unlocked window and an unlocked door and it was easy for him. Okay, now let's move on to the good part when Russell finally gets caught. He had not been a suspect at all for any of his crimes up to this point. Thankfully, this was about to change by what you could consider chance. It's amazing how many times that happens. It really does, and I love it. I feel like it's the universe helping to catch these dirtbags. Jessica was reported missing after not showing up for work. Police suspected foul play when they discovered that her car was at her home, but that she was nowhere to be found. Officers from the OPP and the Belleville Police Department worked together and started to piece together that the two sexual assaults, Marie France's murder and the disappearance of Jessica had to be connected. During part of a giant search that included hundreds of volunteers and police to try and find Jessica, Colonel Russell Williams himself, the murderer, authorized the use of a search and rescue plane from CFB Trenton to be used in the search.
1: That's ballsy. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Sadly, they were unable to locate her. But he has his hands right in this because of his position of authority. Mm Mm-hmm. Eyewitnesses said that they saw a silver SUV parked in a field close to Jessica's house on the night she went missing. Police were able to find tire tracks in the snow, which helped to narrow down the type of SUV that the killer might have driven. By the grace of all things holy, Russell was pulled over on the night of February 4th by the OPP on Highway 37. They were doing a standard drunk driving check and inspecting the tires of all vehicles that they pulled over.
1: Good for them. Mm Mm-hmm. I wonder if they felt intimidated by his rank once they
0: found out who he was. I'm sure they were shocked, but these officers do the right thing. How this is handled from the time they discover him is chef's kiss. It's awesome.
1: Because there would be that potential there to feel completely intimidated.
0: Oh, yeah. And be like, oh, what do I do? Mm -hmm. When Russell was selected to be pulled over, he told police that he had to rush home to a sick child. He must have been sweating in his boots. He
1: has no child. No, he
0: was lying. But trying to like, be like, oh, can we hurry this up? My child's really sick. I got to get home. Yeah. Russell was driving a silver Nissan Pathfinder, one of the vehicles on their list. So I think for sure when they would see a vehicle that matched their list, those ones automatically would get selected to be pulled over. Mm-hmm. When they inspected his tires, they realized that they were a match for the tire tracks left near Jessica's home. Because of this, he was now a person of interest. And I have to say, like you alluded to, thank goodness that the officers that night didn't just make an assumption and dismiss this as a coincidence because of his military rank. Yeah. They actually did their job and didn't treat him any differently.
1: Which probably miffed him right off.
0: Oh, yeah. But I don't think he knew right away that he was a person of interest. He might not have even known they were checking his tires. So he probably drove away thinking like, yeah, got away again. On Sunday, February 7th, Russell was enjoying time with his wife in their newly built home in Westboro, Ottawa. The Ottawa police called him and asked him to come in and answer a few questions to which he agreed. He arrived at the police headquarters and Detective Staff Sergeant James Smith interrogated him. And everyone, please hear me when I say, Sergeant Smith is the real deal. He deserves so much recognition for his work. I watched a nearly three hour video of his interrogation with Russell, and some parts I even watched a second time. And he goes from being like a colleague of Russell's to getting him to confess to everything. He is so good at what he does, I felt like I needed to start confessing all of my own wrongdoings (laughs) to him while I was watching it. I was (laughs) like, oh man, like sinking in my chair. He has definitely mastered the art of interrogation, and I am not convinced that anyone else could have handled this case so amazingly. He knew exactly what to say and how to say it to a man like Russell.
1: Which again would have been so intimidating. Here's this high-ranking officer who just exudes
0: power. Yeah, he rubs elbows with the prime minister and the queen. Mm -hmm. It's wild. Smith even starts out telling Russell that he was free to leave at any time, that he could ask for a lawyer, and that he didn't have to answer any of his questions. So he starts by to just let him know, like, hey, this is just casual. You can leave. I just want to ask you a few questions. The interrogation reportedly lasted for over 10 hours. So even though Russell knew that he could leave, he never did because of how good Smith is. 10 hours is a long time. It is. By my observation in the three hours that I was able to watch, Smith started by building a rapport with Russell. Russell expresses concern about what it might look like with him being questioned And Smith validates his concern by saying, oh, yeah, that's why we asked you to come in on a Sunday so less people would be aware and they could be discreet about it. Like, we just need your help. We just need you to help us answer some questions. Russell starts out appearing at ease. He even like pops in a piece of gum, just like, oh, yeah, 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 this is important, you know, being right on board. And I think he honestly thought he was going to just clear his name and be back in time for dinner. Being confident in his cleanup, he agrees to give a blood sample and have a buccal swab done. He also allows his shoes to be examined. He basically gives to Smith anything he asks for. About giving the sample, Russell asks again about how discreet they will be. He said to Smith, quote, because, uh, you know, this would have a very significant impact on the base if they thought you thought I did this. Smith reassures him again by saying, that's why we're doing it on a Sunday and expresses how much they appreciate all the help the military has given so far. Mm -hmm. Smith starts to list all the crimes that they are looking into, all crimes committed by Russell. He must be sweating in his boots right now. Oh, it is a slow progression to watch him go from just like, yeah, yeah, no problem. You can tell there's nervous energy, but then he gets to this point where he's just shoulders down, looking at the ground, pausing lots in between what he's going to say. It's really spectacular to watch, to be honest. And then there must be this moment where he realizes they've got me. Yeah. And I'm going to walk you through that moment. Okay. I'm spending a lot yeah. on this interrogation just because I feel like it was so great. And I feel like when, when we have these cases where police do an above and beyond job, we need to give them that shout out. Mm-hmm. Smith starts to present evidence, including the tire track evidence, and explains to Russell how DNA works and how they only need a minuscule amount to make a match from a crime scene, even if it's been there for a long time. Eventually, Smith tells Russell that they have obtained search warrants and will be searching his homes and office. He tells Russell, quote, your opportunity to take some control here and to have some explanation that anybody is going to believe is quickly expiring. He continues to tell him that when the evidence starts to pile in and his DNA is matched to the crime scenes that, quote, it's all over because as soon as that happens, where's your credibility? Where's your believability? You're just another, um, and don't take this wrong, okay? But you can see if you step outside this room in your mind and imagine how people are going to view you, okay? If the truth comes out after the clear evidence is presented to you, when you finally go, okay, I'm screwed, now what are we going to do? Russell, you know there's only one option. What are you? What are you? What other option is there? Russell answers by asking, what's the option? Because Smith has said there's only one option here. And Smith says, quote, well, I don't think you want the cold-blooded psychopath option. He then refers to how Paul Bernardo liked the notoriety of that label and said that he didn't feel like Russell was like Bernardo. So he's still playing to his Mm. ego. He's just so good at his job. And while he's doing this, he's staying calm but firm. Like they're even sitting like he's drinking a cup of water. Just like, oh, yeah. So tell me about your vacation. Like that kind of relaxedness. Russell comments about how he can't believe this is happening multiple times. He finally says, quote, When you talk about perception, my only two immediate concerns from a perception perspective are what my wife must be going through right now and the impact this is going to have on the Canadian forces. And I thought, yeah, Russell, you majorly screwed the pooch on both of those things. Yeah. So he's not thinking about himself. <laughs> No. In that moment. No, and it's very clear. Like, I think he is genuine in his confession and later in his apology. I think that is genuine. And he, throughout this, is very concerned about his wife and the Canadian forces.
1: Which were pretty much his family.
0: Yeah. Russell says he wants to minimize the impact on his wife because he knows police are now searching the home that they shared together. Smith says that he wants the same thing. And when Russell asks how they do that... Smith tells him that he starts by telling the truth Mm. because at this point they've been together for a long time and all of this evidence that Russell has turned over to Smith they're processing at the same time while this is happening so he's saying this stuff is going to be coming back any minute it's up to you how are we going to do this Mm -hmm. because once it comes back you're hooped
1: really DNA tests take so much longer than that
0: (laughs) but I mean like his shoes they were testing like all that kind of stuff Because they had found some footprints and and whatnot.
1: So then this is where Russell turns over the boxes and tells him where to look in the garage, right?
0: Yeah, to make it easier for his wife. Mm -hmm. What I felt was next level is Smith didn't immediately get Russell to just blurt out that he was a killer. He started by asking where Jessica was. He's like, where is she? Where is she? And then asks Russell to identify on a map where they could find her. He's like, do you think you could show me on a map? This cracked the code. And Russell then proceeded to tell Smith where Jessica's body was, and then gave a lengthy, detailed confession about everything he did. He even told Smith where the officers could find all the evidence in order to make the searches go smoother for his wife, like we said. And I feel like we all need to do a slow clap for Sergeant Smith. I am sure he helped save more women's lives by helping to take down this bag. They didn't have a lot to go off when Russell walked into the police headquarters that day just tire tracks that could have been really anybody's. But by the time he was arrested and escorted out, they had multiple smoking guns and a full confession. That is pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. Russell was charged with two counts of murder, breaking and entering, forcible confinement, and sexual assault. He was immediately remanded into custody, and the Canadian forces announced that they were appointing an interim commander. They also quickly removed his biography from the Department of National Defense website the very next day. They were quick acting. Russell was held at Quint Detention Center in Napanee, Ontario. In April, he attempted to commit suicide by shoving a wet, stuffed toilet paper roll down his throat. He was trying to block his airway. He had to be placed on suicide watch after this. On October 18, 2010, Russell pled guilty to all charges against him. During the proceedings, it came out that Russell had pedophiliac tendencies and had child pornography at his homes. And I believe this was the only thing he didn't want charges for and possibly used it as a plea deal bargaining chip. From what I could tell, he wasn't charged with possession of child pornography.
1: But it would have been all those pictures that he took of the 12 and 14 year olds.
0: He didn't take pictures of the 12 and 14 year olds. He had taken pictures of their underwear.
1: So he had even more stuff than just the pictures he had taken.
0: Yes. He had child pornography in his home.
1: He was admiring other people's disgusting work as well.
0: Yeah. It wasn't even enough what he was doing. He gets described as like a sexual sadist. And yeah, I think that's probably correct. The court was presented with photographs taken by Russell and somehow Pictures of him in underwear and bikinis were published in several local newspapers. No, how did that leak? Everyone must have hated him. But you can still find them easily online. When I was looking into like photos and stuff, the ones I found were more like him in like bikinis and swimsuits, but they're definitely out there. Wow. If you care to look, but be warned. On October 22nd, 2010... Ontario Superior Court Justice Robert F. Scott sentenced 47-year-old Russell Williams to two life sentences for two counts of first-degree murder with no consideration for parole for 25 years. He was sentenced another 10 years for his forcible confinement charge and then one year for each of his 82 burglary charges. If I did my math correctly, that is a total of 142 years. However, he was ordered to serve his sentences concurrently, so he will be eligible for parole after he has served 25 years. That seems
1: much too short. Mm -hmm.
0: And let's hope that he will not get parole. Mm -hmm. Russell was sent to serve his time at the Kingston Penitentiary, where he spent 23 hours of each day locked in his cell. After that facility closed, he was housed at the maximum security prison, Port Cartier Institution in Quebec. After being convicted of his heinous crimes, Russell was immediately stripped of all his titles and rank. He lost the title of colonel in the Royal Canadian Armed Force and lost all of his military decoration and medals that he had earned. Surprisingly, he was allowed to keep his $60,000 a year pension because apparently that can only be removed by an act of Parliament.
1: And Parliament didn't want to get involved? Like, this sounds like a good enough excuse to remove that.
0: From the research that I found, at whatever point, as far as I know, it has not been removed. Mm. Maybe it has since, but I don't think so. Maybe his wife needs his pension to live off of. Well, she was a little rock star of her own, but I would assume that that money would be going to her. In 2012, a booklet published by the Canadian Forces accidentally included a photograph that had Russell in the background. All 4,000 copies of the publication were ordered to be destroyed. Yeah, they're serious about their image, right? Oh, for sure. Russell's Nissan Pathfinder, the clothing he stole from the women, and even his uniform were also destroyed. His wife immediately began divorce proceedings. She was totally unaware of her husband's crimes. She thought they were a happy power couple, only to learn that he was a monster who broke into homes, stole young girls' underwear, masturbated in their rooms, and then escalated to assault and murder. The Crown lawyer, Lee Burgess, stated that Russell was one of the worst offenders in Canadian history. He said, quote, we are a community that's been shocked and saddened by all that's transpired. The impact of his crimes extends far beyond his crimes. What makes it more despicable is this is a man considered above reproach. He betrayed this community and he betrayed the military and he betrayed the men and women who serve in the military. He was a leader in that base and in the community. He exploited that to divert suspicion from himself. He then goes on to give examples of how Russell had us all deceived. One night, he dropped the puck at the Bellevilles hockey game and then went and broke into a woman's home that same night. And when he was given the honour to carry the Olympic torch while everyone cheered him on, he had already committed many of his twisted crimes. (sighs) Even Russell's defence lawyer later acknowledged the pain and suffering that Russell had caused to his victims and their families. I want to end with reading part of a news article published by cbc.ca on October 10, 2010. It reads, quote, Williams, 47, had pleaded guilty Monday to 88 charges. He blew his nose before standing in the Eastern Ontario courtroom to address Scott. Williams was shaking, tearing up, and paused between sentences during his five-minute address. Quote, Your Honour, I stand before you, indescribably ashamed. I know the crimes I have committed have traumatized many people, he said. The family and friends of Marie-France Camot and Jessica Lloyd, in particular, have suffered and continue to suffer profound, desperate pain and sorrows as a result of what I've done. William said he understands, quote, The hatred expressed yesterday, and that has been palpable throughout the week. I deeply regret the harm I know I've caused. He also said, I committed despicable crimes, Your Honour and in the process betrayed my family, my friends, and colleagues, and the Canadian forces. And to that I just have to say, agreed. Yeah, you did. Mm -hmm. And that is the story of a revered colonel in the Canadian military who fooled a nation. A dirtbag of such grandiosity that will forever be a gross stain on our history. The incredibly disgusting and perverted killer, David Russell Williams.
1: He is a dirtbag. A creepy, creepy dirtbag.
0: Yeah. He honestly is what women
1: fear most. And that fear is just made so much worse because he had that position of authority and that position of being somebody that should have protected people.
0: Absolutely. Like I said at the beginning, I would have been right along with everybody else totally bamboozled by him. It's hard to believe when you see him in his uniform, all the different pictures of him doing his job, smiling, signing paperwork, standing next to the queen...
1: You would never think that he was the dirtbag that he was. No. Well, Christy, that was an utterly disturbing case.
0: It really was. And thank you to Susan for requesting it. We love that we're continuing to get new listeners, and we hope that all of you will continue to enjoy our podcast. And we'll be back again next week. Until then. See ya. Bye. I louder now (laughs) it's not
1: usual for you not to be the loud
0: one I (laughs) I haven't turned it on okay just the blanket to kick her in the shin (laughs) to wake her up (laughs) everyone's like yeah right
1: (laughs) you can leave all of that out
0: but (laughs) I'll leave some of it in (laughs) upside down pineapples we run away (laughs) really fast I still think that would be a sweet deal. That's so true. <laughs> I don't want recorded evidence. <laughs> well,
1: That's a whole rabbit hole we will not go down. <laughs> yep.
0: Scarborough campus. I can never say it. Why do they have that extra O in there?
1: Well, I don't know why you're trusting me to say anything because what was it? Wyoming?
0: Wyoming. <laughs> 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 I got too many things to do for that. <laughs> if you didn't have so many
1: things to do, you probably would.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I'd probably get a leg cramp. Have <laughs> I mean, you ever heard that expression? No. <laughs> when someone makes a good point, you say, say that again for the people in the back oh, no. to make sure everyone hears it. <laughs> no, I take everything literally. So I would have been like and so if you're emotional <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because you were just talking about intellectual intelligence yeah. and emotional intelligence. True. Three leaks three
1: leaks later. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was leaky. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know how you're gonna rein that back in, but or cut yeah.
0: any of that. But <laughs> <laughs> which how bleh, which helped? Russell says that he does want to. Russell says he wants to Im- minimize. Oh my goodness!
1: So we hope you say stay. We we hope you say st- we hope you stay.